right, well, it is a good evening and good evening to be here with you guys back together tonight um, after an encouraging Easter weekend. I know a number of you went home. How many of you went home as an out of Lynchburg? All right. So I hope, I hope your time with family and, uh, or friends uh, was a blessing. Last Thursday, we, we had a sweet uh, communion service, but we didn't meet uh, as boundless because, because of that service. So uh, at least from a boundless perspective, you didn't miss anything. Uh, you did miss something significant in the communion service. If you weren't here, uh, it was a sweet time. Well, if you remember uh, where we've been, this semester we've been working through Paul's instructions about the Christian household. The Christian household in Ephesians 5 and 6. So if you're not there, you can go ahead and and turn there. Paul has been teaching us what spirit-filled relationships within the home should look like. If Christ has saved us, if Christ has saved you, if He's given you His Spirit, then, then the growing evidence that we really belong to Him will be worked out in the most mundane and often challenging relationships in the home and in the family. Paul cares tremendously uh, about how we treat each other in the church, for sure, but also how that gets worked out in the little microcosms of the church in the Christian family, in the congregation. And he, he cares about that because how we treat each other will either put God's wisdom and glory on display, or it will profane His glory. We will either advance His glorious mission, even in those mundane relationships, or we will oppose His mission in our sin. We're either going to flourish in joy and fruitfulness in the home, Or we're going to flounder in rebellion and strife and pain in the home because we're kicking against God's design. So Paul writes to these Ephesians, and and by extension to us today, to to give us some really practical targets. Targets for wives, targets for husbands, targets for children, targets for parents. And as we're going to see tonight, uh, he continues pushing this out, and we're going to see that the, the practical instruction is, is fleshed out in these targets for slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. And now, the fact that Paul addresses slaves and masters here probably raises some questions for you. Especially if you're fairly new to the faith, haven't encountered this before. You might wonder why in his train of thought, Paul jumps from family and the relationships there, to slavery and relationships between slaves and masters. Well, it's because in Paul's day, the slaves were most commonly owned by private families. And because of that, slaves were treated as part of the household in this period. So really, Paul's not doing anything, Paul's not doing anything different. He's continuing to give household instructions, and he's just addressing the slaves and the masters. And it explains why he... He would, we, he would go there in these instructions to the, to the household. And just as we're kind of making our way into this text, there were a lot of slaves in this period. It's estimated that about one-third of the total population of Ephesus were slaves, a third. Slaves were mostly people that were captured from war, 
That's how they became slaves, or their children, their descendants, that were born into slavery. Sometimes, people would sell themselves into slavery if they were in debt over their heads, and they couldn't get out of it. They would sell themselves in, into slavery to, as, a, as a payment of the debt. Other times, abandoned infants would be raised as slaves. And the point is, the point I'm just trying to make, is there were a lot of slaves in, in this day. And they were an integral part of society and industry. Many of them were given lots of responsibility and were often able to, to purchase their freedom after a period of time. And, but in spite of that, culturally, relations weren't very good between slaves and their masters. Because slaves were owned by their masters, they could technically do whatever they wanted to with them. But there was, you know, before we kind of jump to some conclusions, there was a court of appeals, quote-unquote, that the slaves could go to in the Roman Empire. If they were being treated unjustly, they could make their appeals. But we're not sure just how just those courts were. Uh, it was not uncommon for briberies to happen, and if the masters were wealthy and the slaves were not, we know how those things go. So conditions were not that great in, in the wider unbelieving culture between these two groups of masters and their slaves. And it, and it went both ways. I mean, you see all these stories of even masters being afraid of their slaves, especially if they went on business trips because they're out in the wilderness and the slaves could murder their masters and then escape. So it, it kind of went both ways. And one historian put it like this. He says, the, the traditional expectations were that masters would take advantage of, of their power over their slaves and that slaves would respond with deceptiveness and lack of zeal for their work. So relations were not good between these two groups in this culture. But for Paul, the gospel has surprising implications even for this often oppressive and often abusive human institution. According to Paul... The new creation life can and will shine brightly even in relationships between Christian slaves and masters. It's actually pretty shocking to our ears. What Paul says here might surprise you. Or more specifically, what he doesn't say might surprise you. In the verses we're going to look at tonight, nowhere does Paul advocate for a social revolt of the Christian slave nor does he command Christian masters to free their slaves. The million-dollar question that we have to ask is why? Why doesn't he do that? Well, something else was evidently more important to Paul, himself being oppressed, and maybe he wasn't a slave, but he was <laughs> had a life of suffering, and he followed the, the most oppressed man to have ever graced our planet, Christ. So something was more important to Paul than the institution of slavery. Something was more significant to him than the abolition of the institution of slavery. Here's how one author put it. This will be a long quote, but I'll read it slow. Kind of track with me. It's a great quote. He says, In Paul's mind, one's social standing or class was rather insignificant. And he, by the way, he's drawn off of predominantly 1 Corinthians 7 in this statement. In Paul's mind, one's social standing or class was rather insignificant. The present age 
is temporary and will soon pass away. And thus, whether one is slave or free is of little importance. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. What really matters is that slaves are free in Christ. Verse 22. His instructions to slaves and masters, now he's kind of appealing to texts like we're going to look at in Ephesians, his instructions to slaves and masters reveal that Paul was no revolutionary. The social pattern of the Greco-Roman society is maintained. At the same time, the Pauline Gospel transforms the social world in that, catch this, slavery was viewed in a new way. In Christ Jesus, it is irrelevant whether one is slave or free. Belonging to Christ is the fundamental reality. The social stratification of this world is only temporary. Hence, believers should not live as if it were ultimate, as if it says anything of great significance about a fellow believer. It does not follow, however, from this, that life in this world is irrelevant or a mirage. Paul encourages slaves to avail themselves of freedom if this is possible, 1 Corinthians 7.21. He fears, though, that those who are enslaved and those who are free will latch on to the idea that their social position is important in God's sight or that it is decisive for their ministry. The radical reevaluation of persons in Christ is easy for us to overlook because we wonder why Paul did not lead a social revolution. And here's the, here's the kicker Paul's conception of social standing is itself revolutionary. Whether one is slave or free is a secondary matter to him. Those who concentrate exclusively on such issues reveal that they are still caught up with the life of this present world. That was a great quote. Especially in our day. And in the the social milieu that we live. That's why I read it. So in in Paul's instructions in our passage tonight, he's going to give some targets for how Christian slaves and Christian masters should relate. Now, as we think about this for our context today, thankfully... God has in His kind providence eliminated the the legalized institution of slavery in our nation. It's a a grace that God has done that. It's a kind providence. But it doesn't mean that what he says, Paul says, since that, that doesn't exist in our day, that that's irrelevant. Much of what Paul says can be applied in principle to the relationships between employees and employers. Okay, employees and employers. And it can be applied with with one major caveat. As long as we realize the obvious differences between slavery and employment. Okay, can we just agree on that? There's some pretty major differences between slavery and employment now. As we go along, I'll try to draw these these differences out as we we go. But in principle, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be applying Paul's instructions here to, to the categories we all find ourselves in either as employees or employers, or somewhere in between, the mid-level manager, or you're both. You are employed 
and you are managing. So the last time we were together, we looked at what the Bible teaches us in broad terms about work. Remember that? Two weeks ago. I wanted to pan out then and give you a biblical framework for work from creation to the new creation to help us approach what Paul's going to say about work in our, in our next passage in Ephesians 6. So you can think of the previous message as the framework for the significance of the glory of work. And tonight you can think about this message as largely what our work as Christians should look like and how we glorify God in it. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, and we're going to look at uh, two sets of principles. So I'm calling this message Principles for Employees and Employers. So you're not confused about what this is about. (laughs) And uh, where we're headed is two sets of principles that are going to inform how we work. Two sets of, of principles that will inform how we should work as Christians. And one set is for employees... And the other set is for employers or, or managers. All right. <clears throat> so, number one, let's look at principles for employees from this passage here in, um, in Ephesians. Let's go ahead and read uh, the first part of the passage. Now, just, we're going to, because most of you are going to be employees or are employees right now, I'm going to spend the majority of the time on this first principle. So, don't panic. Okay, when we get, if we spend a lot of time on it, think, oh gosh, you're going to give us over two hours. I won't. I don't think. <laughs> this hopefully should be shorter than the other one, so uh, we'll see. Principles for employees. All right, chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Bond servants, literally slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So principles for employees, I'm going to draw from this passage that Paul talks to slaves about. So, Paul tells slaves... Again, I think I said this, but the ESV translates this as bondservants. Here it's just the term for slaves. He tells them to obey their masters in verse 5. Then he tells them what this obedience should look like, how it should flesh itself out. That's really the bulk of that passage. It's what it, what it should look like, what it should not look like. Then he tells them at the end why, what should motivate them to this sort of high calling, why they should obey. So that's how the text unfolds. And there's really just one instruction. Slaves are to obey their masters. Okay, case closed. Let's go home. (laughs) Like children are to obey their parents and wives are to submit to their husbands. Slaves then are to obey their masters. Even in this human institution, Paul encourages rightful obedience to those in authority. In this case, masters. So as we think about the transition to employees now, we need to be careful at the outset. Christian employees should, on the whole, obey their employers. But the situations aren't exactly the same. Thankfully, in our, in our day, there are considerable freedoms and protections given to employees of companies, as well as the general ability to look for another job 
if you want to transition. Slaves in the Greco-Roman world typically did not have that option. But in principle, while Paul might not tell employees to, to comprehensively obey like he would to the slaves here, I think, I think he would encourage faithfulness to your employer as you render your energies to them. So I think holistically, obedience is a good, good category here. So with that caveat, let's draw some principles from this passage that are applicable to the work of the Christian employee. All right, notice initially that Paul tells us or encourages us to work with the right perspective. Work with the right perspective in verse 5. He says, bond servants obey your earthly masters. Earthly masters. I'm drawing this principle from how Paul initially describes the slaves' masters. He calls them their, their earthly masters, how the ESV translates that. Literally, Paul says, obey your according to the flesh masters. Kind of awkward sounding, but it's helpful because it kind of grabs our attention. Obey your according to the flesh masters. Why does he say that? Why, why, why doesn't he just say, slaves obey your masters? Like he did with, he didn't say, wives obey your according to the flesh husbands. Um, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, so why does he say that here? Why does he go to great lengths to describe them as earthly or according to the flesh? Well, it's because he wants to establish at the outset that the master-slave relationship is only temporary. It's only temporary. It's according to the flesh. They are your masters or lords, or in our case, bosses, only for a short time. Because there's a greater reality at play now that Christ has risen. There's a greater master, or boss, to use our vernacular, in heaven. And that's actually where he ends this whole passage in his address to masters in verse 9. Notice this, he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours, literally, their Lord and yours, is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So, there's a heavenly master, who's the master of both little m masters and slaves. That's the greater reality that's at play here. So, what does this mean for us as employees, then? <clears throat> Well, it means that, that as we approach our work relationships, our work in general, we need to approach them with the right perspective. Your boss isn't eternal. Even if you work for them your entire life. Even if you work for them your whole life, this side of the resurrection. These institutions are all temporary, and your relationship with your boss or company, will eventually pass away. And that's incredibly encouraging if your boss is not a good boss, right? Like we said earlier, there's a greater reality at play even now, even if you're in the lowest category of society. You have a greater boss, with a capital B, that you're ultimately employed to, and obedience to him in your work is what ultimately matters. In, in this, it gives it significance beyond the current mundane grind. Now that said, we'll talk more, we'll flesh that out more as we go, but that said, we're still on this side of the resurrection. Except for Christ. And Lazarus. Well, he died again. So he's, he's still on this side. So, 
that was, sorry, it's a Sunday reference. If you weren't there, don't worry about it. Okay. So the employer that you have is still your earthly employer, right? And as a result, Paul says that we should treat them with the most profound level of respect and honor. And that brings us to our next principle, is that we should work with profound respect for our bosses and our managers. We should work with profound respect for them. Notice what Paul says next. He tells, to, he tells the slaves to obey their earthly masters, quote, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. And that just means with the most profound level of respect that a human being can muster. Often it's, it's used in terms of like how we approach God, or I think in other cases with our sanctification, our, our growth in Christ with fear and trembling, Philippians. In this case, it's... it's, it's in the context, it's referring to profound respect, deep honor for our employers and managers. Now, this is pretty radical. If you think about uh, the often harsh and unjust conditions of some of these slaves, the things they, kind of the things they were subjected to as slaves, especially if they didn't have Christian masters. But Paul says that they should treat them with respect and the implication is regardless of whether they actually elicit that respect or not. Like, notice there's no caveat. Treat, them, treat the nice ones with respect. He says, no, treat your, according to the flesh masters, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. No caveats. And, and many of you know experientially how difficult this is, don't you? It's so tempting to slander a bad boss or a manager with your other employees or with family members or whatever. You're coming home, you're debriefing. It's so easy, tempting to speak disrespectfully even to them, to their face, or give them a piece of your mind whenever they, you know, they've crossed you or make their life difficult as the manager in subtle ways to spite them, right? The opportunities for dishonor are almost endless in the workplace. And you feel so justified when the manager actually deserves it, or at least according to you. But Paul here radically tells us to hold the line with our tongues and behavior. Hold that line. Find ways to treat these people, these masters, these employers, these bosses, these managers. Find ways to treat them honorably regardless of whether we think they deserve it or not. Now, again, this does not mean, one of the differences, you can't seek to confront them honorably and graciously. It takes wisdom. I would encourage you to get counsel on that before you just up and do it. But it doesn't mean you can't do that. It also doesn't mean you can't appeal above them if they are mismanaging the business. But you need to work to do everything you can to both communicate and demonstrate to them that you are fundamentally for them. Which is not what you want to be if they are slighting you. You're fundamentally for them. You're fundamentally for the good of the company and you want what is best for them. 
which is the motive for you confronting, the motive for you appealing higher than them. And that actually brings us to our next radical principle for employees, if your heart kind of balked at that. Because Paul tells the slaves to work with convictional sincerity. I'll explain that. Work with convictional sincerity. And this is another radical principle. After he tells them to fear and trembling, he says, obey, in verse 5, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So into verse 5, all the way through verse 6, I think is this, is this principle. Work with convictional sincerity. There's several phrases here in this passage that we just read. Some of them are positive. Obey like this. Some of them are negative. Not like this. But I think they're all related in the, the thread. And I've grouped them together here in this, in this heading, in this principle. And they have to do, all of these things have to do with honesty and sincerity. And, and that's the sincerity that Paul's talking about here is not a superficial sincerity. That's kind of his point. That's why he elaborates it with so many different phrases. He's wanting you to get it. It's a deeply rooted conviction that will last over time. That's the point. It's deeply rooted. It is in the heart. Do you hear that language? Sincere hearts. And then notice down um, at the end of that verse in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. Literally, it's from the soul. So he uses two different words, heart and soul, the most inner part of the human being. So that's, that's where I'm getting the language of convictional. It's got to be convictional. It's coming from the most inner part of us. So let, let's, un, let's unpack a few of these phrases here, and I think you'll see how I got to this, this phrase. I got a little ahead of myself. Okay, so he says we should obey with sincerity of heart as to Christ. And the very innermost part of us are to be committed to the good of our employer, to the overall good of the business. That's, just, that's, that's the point of the word heart. The phrase has the idea of a singleness of purpose. This sincerity is like a singleness of purpose. And that purpose is for the benefit, the good of the employer, the business, and those that you're serving in the business. But what, kind, what drives this kind of sincere commitment, this kind of intense conviction, especially if your employer is a dirtbag? All right? What's driving that? Look closely here at the text. It's because Christ stands behind your employer as the ultimate capital E employer. He says, obey with sincerity of heart as to Christ, as to Him. He stands behind. We obey our earthly employers as we would obey Christ, our Messiah, because He ultimately stands behind all of them as the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all industry, the Lord of all dominion, to whom all that dominion is going to flow one day. He stands behind them. One author said it like this, slaves are to see the opportunity to serve Christ and to perform their work as if they were doing it for Christ Himself. For Christ Himself. Now if you're thinking, how does that? 
how does that motivate me? Like, just serve Jesus? Like, it still doesn't, the boss is still a dirtbag. If that's a question, then you have a little teeny tiny view of what the Messiah has done for you. Little, little view. You say, how is that supposed to motivate me? He became a slave for you. Like he ransomed you. He, he stood in the place of the wrath of God for you. He humbled himself. He hung naked for you on the cross. He came to you when you were dead in sin and, and resurrected you and brought you to himself and reconciled you to God. He came and preached peace to you, Ephesians 2. He resurrected you for good works, for his glory. And then as we're going to see in a, in a moment, he is going to reward you for all of that. you think, how does, how does it motivate He stands behind the dirtbag. And he's not. He's glorious. And he's involved. And he's ordaining the situation. He's ordaining your workplace. He's ordaining the boss. He's ordaining the trial. And he's saying, work. Work for me. And like we're going to see, huge motivation. I will reward you. I will reward you. So, Huge motivation for Paul. Paul knew that it would motivate the slaves to work hard. And notice as he continues, Paul continues in this passage, he's hammering this point of sincerity. He's hammering it. Because remember, slaves were tempted to be dishonest, disrespectful to their masters. So he's hammering this point of sincerity. He says we're to obey not with eye service as people pleasers. Not with eye service. Don't, Don't do that. Not with eye service and people pleasers. So what does obedience with eye service look like? Like, what does that mean? You know, I, what, is, what is that, eye service? Do we talk about, do you guys talk that way? I don't, okay. He means we shouldn't work hard merely only to be noticed by our boss when he or she isn't looking. And then cut corners and work lazily when they aren't looking. That's eye service, service for their eyes. And they're looking at you. And they're not looking at you. You're cutting corners. You're not working hard. That's eye service obedience. That's people pleasing, as he says here, or the fear of man. So you fear them. They're ultimate. And so you're, you're working hard to get in their good graces, and that's all you care about. When you've got what you want, then you're done. And if that's you, that reveals something. It's helpful. It's helpful to notice this about yourself because it's, it's telling you something about yourself. And it's telling you in that moment, at least in that moment, that you're forgetting that Christ is your ultimate master. You're just forgetting that because you're fearing these people. You're a man pleaser. Like you're an eye service worker, right? Like that's, that's all we want to do. We've all been there. We likely will be there this week. But it's helpful because it helps us see where, how we can repent, where, where the battle is. We're forgetting that our ultimate master is here and, and that my ultimate slavery is to him. And that's exactly where Paul goes, right? Instead of obeying with eye service, Paul says we should obey most fundamentally as slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ. Slavery isn't abolished in the new, in the new creation. 
There's just a perfect master, and we're all his slaves. We're slaves of Christ, fundamentally, and that is one of the greatest titles we could ever have. And we have to remember in those moments that we're tempted to cut corners, that we are fundamentally his employee, and that all our work, no matter how hard or how mundane, is worship to him. All of it. And this is the conviction that will make a Christian worker glorious. Okay? Glorious. This kind of work ethic is inexplicable apart from the gospel. Because it's rooted in the truth. It's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in all He's done for us. When you're getting hammered in the workplace, things are unfair. More burdens are placed on you than you could possibly manage. And you are not slandering your boss. And you are getting after it. And you're joyful. And you're, you're, you're laying it all out there on the line as we're going to see in the workplace for the good of the boss that hates you. No one can do that apart from Christ. Not long term at least. This kind of work ethic is inexplicable apart from the gospel because it's rooted in the truth, rooted in Christ, and it's rooted in all He's done for us. There is an eternal motivation, and it's in Him. No work, then, is beneath the believer. No work is too menial because it's all done for Him and in His presence, and it's worship unto Him. This, like, fueled me when I was, like, cleaning toilets at Starbucks. I mean, fueled me. Christ is here. I mean, I just I didn't want to do it. Didn't, I wanted to cut corners. Often had to repent. And this truth, these kinds of truths fuel me as I, as I do the more mundane tasks in my current job as a pastor. Administration. I don't like administration. It's difficult for me. I'm not the most organized guy, but I have administrative tasks that I have to do. Work at it. But these kinds of things, there's nothing beneath the believer because there's nothing beneath Christ. And He's our ultimate boss and He's present. He's taking pleasure in our work and He's promising to bless it. He's promising to make it fruitful. And really all this leads us to another related principle for how we work. That, that we're to work not just for, with this convictional sincerity for the, for the company, for the boss, for whatever. Ultimately for Christ. But we work with this wholehearted diligence is, is the next principle. Wholehearted diligence. Verse 7. Paul says, we work or we serve, we obey, the, the slaves are to obey, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You can even hear the same you hear how many times he appeals to the fact that we're working for Christ. He does it three times in this passage. Very important principle. But what I'm drawing out right here is that the point if we were to work with this wholehearted <clears throat> diligence. Because what Paul says here is that we are to render service, literally serve, with, quote, goodwill. Do you see that in your text? The word goodwill? How does your text translate it? Enthusiasm. What, what, what translation do you have? Ooh, dynamic equivalent. All right. Enthusiasm. What, what else? Goodwill? 
All right. So this word, goodwill, is an interesting one. It's very rare. So it means it's hard to translate. And it has the idea of eagerness or enthusiasm. So ding, 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 NLT. The scholars of the NLT got it right, in my opinion. So it's the opposite of work that's done grudgingly or out of sheer necessity. Okay? It's opposite of work that's done sort of grudgingly or like, I got to do it or I'm going to die. That's true. But it's, it's the opposite of that. Like, like, like work that, like when you don't have a choice to write the research paper, because if you don't write it, you're going to fail. Uh, so you do it, but you do it complaining all the way. That's like grudgingly getting it done. That's not rendering service with goodwill or, in this, or, or better, a wholehearted diligence and enthusiasm, as the NLT translates it. So this kind of working person <clears throat> throws themselves into the work. They throw themselves into it. They see the value of what they put their hands or brains to, and they get after it diligently and as efficiently as they can. They know that they are ultimately working in service of their Lord, like it says, in, in, in the serving the Lord, not men. So they're wholehearted in, in, their, in their work. <clears throat> but you might be thinking, uh, wow, I'm so lazy when it comes to my studies, my job, my chores at home, like, complain all the time. <laughs> How in the world am I going to get to a place where I work like this, like that? How can I grow into this kind of Christian work ethic? <clears throat> well, there's a lot of things we could say that the Bible says. But Paul gives us one more principle here. <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is it's like allergy season. Like a, it's like a pollen bomb went off out there, and I am dying. Thankfully, I'm not, I'm not crying right now, which is what I thought I, I might be doing right now. Don't go to North Carolina. Is it bad down there? Mm. I think it's pretty bad right here. So, <clears throat> well, hey, thank you, Lord, that I live in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> so that our last principle is a huge motivator for how to how to get here. Okay, and he says work. Realizing the potential for reward. Work, realizing the potential for reward. Look in verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says we should, the, the slaves, he commands the slaves to obey. Drawing, this is drawing from the verb in verse 5. Obey, dot, dot, dot. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free. Paul says if we're going to grow in this kind of tireless, wholehearted, sincere, respectful work ethic, then we have to know something. Do you see the verb? Knowing. We have to know something. What do we have to know? Or say it differently. 
in what area must our minds be renewed? We have to know that all our work, if done in faith, if performed in obedience to Christ, in dependence upon Him, will be rewarded by Him. And in particular, Paul's implying here that we have to know something very specific that we will be rewarded in proportion to the good that we have done in obedience to Him. And the converse is also true. We will not be rewarded for all of the anxious striving. We've got to know that. Now you think, huh, so just, I want, again, just notice the proportional language. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, whatever good anyone does, meaning whatever work, whatever employment, whatever we do, whatever good, this, this, referring back to the good, this good, he will receive back from the Lord. So you see that? You see the connection? Whatever I'm doing, in obedience to Christ, Christ is going to say, okay, all that you did, I'm going to give it back to you in a reward. So that makes, I mean, there's all kinds of questions with that, right? Like, what is going on with that? What is Paul envisioning here that we will receive back from the Lord? Well, I don't think we can answer this with 100% certainty from this text because that's all he says right here. And we're kind of left to wonder and and anticipate what that might be. Some would say that what we receive is the reward of eternal life. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because eternal life is not proportional. Meaning that if I work harder for Christ now, I'm going to get more reward from him later, like of of life. It seems to be sort of holistic. Eternal life is sort of holistic. The New Testament doesn't, doesn't, to my understanding, doesn't teach that eternal life has gradations. Christ has obtained the incredible gift for us, and we will all participate in that new creation. But the New Testament does seem to imply that there will be varying levels of responsibility in the coming kingdom. Varying levels of responsibility in the coming kingdom, and that and that's tied, that responsibility is tied to the faithfulness that we exhibited now in the old creation. Make sense? So turn just quickly over to Luke 19. I've been thinking a lot about this concept of how the old creation and what we do here is related to the new. So I'm kind of just in, still studying this. Uh, so I'm going to have more for you later, but um, this I know for sure. Luke 19, uh, verse 11, Jesus tells this parable. And just by the way, there's a principle through Luke that you've, if you heard faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. You heard that principle? 
we often think like, well, if I'm faithful in my studies, then I'm going to be faithful. God will give me the job that I want. I'll be faithful in the job that I want. I'll be faithful in much. Or if I'm faithful as a single, he'll give me a family, and I'll be faithful in a family. I mean, that may be true. I'm sure the principle works itself out that way. But in the context of those passages, it's talking about faithfulness in this life to more faithfulness in the next. Like, that's the principle, and you're going to see this in the parable. Okay? So, Luke 19, he says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So he, the king went away, or he's going to go away, and then he's going to come back. So you can hear the obvious allusions to the ascension and the return of Christ. Verse 13, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So he's foreshadowing the the rejection of Israel in this parable. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So at what point? It's when he returned, right? When he came back, he's calling to account the minas. Like, okay, show me what you did with what I gave you. Show me how faithful you were with the little that I gave you. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Notice the language. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Whoa! That is not proportional. (laughs) That is like way beyond he had like 10 grand and he just and he just got authority over 10 cities verse 18 and the second came saying lord your mina has made five minas and he said to him and you are to be over how many cities five cities so the one guy's over 10 this guy's over five then another came to him and saying lord here's your mina which i kept laid away in a handkerchief for i was afraid of you because you're a severe man you take what you did on deposit reap what you did not sow said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, I was, you, you knew I was a severe man? Essentially, like you're saying I'm severe, so if you really believe that, why did you not at least, take, why did you not at least deposit and reap what... Uh, taking what I did not deposit, reap what I did not So why then did you not put my money in the bank, kind of at least, and in my coming I might have collected it with interest? So he's exposing that the guy really didn't... He's really not... He just doesn't have faith. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. So all I'm wanting to, to do, there's all kinds of questions about this thing, and I, I'm not, I told myself I'm not going like, to get into this, the parable. Okay, Sorry, explaining all the details. The point is that faithful in little, faithful in much, faithful in little is when he gave him the minas, this side. You tracking? And then faithful in much is the reigning with Christ. Remember that we talked about two weeks ago, the work in the new creation? The reigning with the Lord Jesus, that's coming, that's work in the new creation, we're, we're, that's going to be proportional to what we did this side. Make sense? So I'm just, I just want to show you that versus just saying it. Like, oh, this is a principle in the Bible. Like, I want to I show you where that is. There's more there, but that's just a good thing to kind of tuck away. So, if you flip back to Ephesians... Paul is saying that we've got to know this. Because this renewed thinking will 
will yield incredible productivity now for the glory of Christ. How many of you thought about this this week? you got to know it, Paul said. you got to know it. This has got to motivate you, or you're not going to be productive for the kingdom. You have to know it. And the most mundane tasks, think about this, the most mundane tasks you do now, they're all open for accruing reward. If you do them in faith, in obedience to Christ, these mundane things you do are noted by Him and are promised to be rewarded by Him when He returns. Your faithfulness in little is developing kingdom character in you to be faithful in much in the new creation. Like He's forging regal character in you. No matter what your station is, a slave doesn't matter. That's incredible motivation to get after it, no matter how we feel, no matter what's, what the odds are, to not waste the time because we only have so much of it. So let's, let's press this a little, even a little further, um, maybe beyond where Paul goes here. I think we're staying consistent with what Paul would say. Uh, but let's, let's think about how we might grow in being this kind of Christ-glorifying worker. And it starts with renewing our minds, becoming familiar with the pastors like this one, right? And getting that internally, living, kind of starting to live out of these truths that we just looked at. Just, just want to get practical. Be, beyond that, the thing that most helps me in cultivating an awareness of, of, of Christ's presence is that, that, that daily time with Him, as I cultivate this awareness that He is with me. He's present in my life. And not only is He with me, He's favorably present with me because of my standing in Christ. I'm a sinner, but He's with me. He's died for me. He's, re- he's brought me back to God. As I cultivate this relationship with Him through daily meditation and prayer, I am more aware of the eternality of my daily tasks. So, again, there's no, you can see examples of this in the Bible, but no, like, command. But I think the mornings are essential. Essential. It's like tuning your instrument while you're playing it. If you're, like, your day is going, you're trying to renew your mind, that's important. But, like, man, if you can tune your instrument before you play, that's ideal. So, mornings are, are ideal. Mornings are preferable to, to begin the day in renewal with the Lord, renewing your mind, meeting with Him, exposing the lies as you get in His Word, as you have a plan, as you're reading through it, as you're studying what we're preaching through, as you're reviewing sermon messages. It doesn't matter what you do. Just have a plan. And you're getting before the Lord. It is a relationship with Him where He speaks to you through His Word and you respond to Him in prayer. You're hearing from Him in His Word. and What I do is a lot of the time is I lay out my day and my burdens before Him. Like, I can kind of know where I'm going. If you don't know where you're going in your day, there's a problem. Okay, so let's, let's, <laughs> let's think about that. Okay, we could talk about that. Just kind of like laying out, having a plan for what you're going to do today. Laying out your day. I lay out my day, and, and with that day, it comes burdens. 
anxieties that I face, things I don't want to do, uh, things I want to escape from. But I lay those before the Lord, and I ask Him to energize those, those areas and make them fruitful. And what is that doing? I mean, that's immediately like John 15, abiding, fruit, vine. I'm, I'm aware that like I'm a branch, He's the vine, I can do nothing without Him. Laying myself before him, and I'm saying, if, if there's anything eternal going to happen, you've got to work in and through me to do it. And I've, I've got this situation, that situation, that situation that I know are going to be challenging. So help me. And then I ask him to help me, you know, as I think through those areas of temptation, I, I confess those to him, and I ask for help and insight into the truth of Scripture that will help me renew my mind in those areas. And I think about it, and I write them out, I journal. And lots of times the Spirit answers those prayers, leads me to certain texts that I've studied. Obviously, you've got to have a well, but leads you to specific truth, brings specific things to mind that are going to be helpful in those particular areas. If you don't know those, then get with somebody that's more mature than you, and they can help you, they can help you identify some of those areas and scriptures that would go with them. And then I, I write those out you know, to, to help me. So let me just give you an example. There was a particular time, I think about a year ago, where uh, I was just like really battling some, some depressive feelings, okay? Feelings. They were coming from within me. Depression, sort of, use the category, or just like sort of depressed feelings. Because I had a lot to do. I wasn't getting it done. Things were flying off the plate. People were upset. Not upset, but you know, like I'm letting people down. So the Lord's exposing all kinds of things in me. And there was just, I'm just kind of like beginning to lay these things out before him, feeling very overwhelmed by these administrative tasks at church. I don't want to do them. I was tempted, doubly so, to sleep in, to not face those tasks. Again, it's escapism. So if you're having a hard time waking up, it might be because of that. All right, so I'm, I'm trying to escape. I don't, want to, I don't want to face the burdens and the pressures. The Lord begins to reveal this to me. And, he, and he, he led me to Ephesians 2. Again, I meditate on these, I meditate on Ephesians for hours as I prepare for this. So, and he helped me reframe those tasks from Ephesians 2.10. He says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. It reframed the task list as good works that God ordained, prepared beforehand for me to walk in. And if they fall off the plate when I'm working my hardest, they fall off the plate. I'm going to trust him. He began to kind of help me reframe that situation in order to work hard in them and check them off versus the like the snowball you know what I'm talking about like you, you, you procrastinate you, you do something you're not supposed to do then you're discouraged and it just, it just continues, to, continues to snowball you feel guilty you didn't do what you're supposed to do you're buried you just kind of feel the displeasure of the Lord and you don't go back to him so, so that it can, just, it can just hammer you okay so we, when you're in those tempting scenarios remember that these very scenarios are the moments to increase your trust in Christ. That's why they're there. To increase your trust in Christ, He's with you, and He wants to meet with you in those scenarios to increase your communion with Him in those scenarios. He wants to increase your character to help you imitate Him as you decide to obey Him in that moment when it's hard. As you find ways to yield your will day in and day out to him in those areas, that's how you grow over time. There's no other way. That is the path. And he has ordained it. 
they're good works for you to walk in. So that, I've just given you an example out of my own life of just how, how these things are working. So when you're lazy, okay, and you will be, when you blow it at school or work, you waste time, you, what do you do? You confess it. You repent. You get back after it. Because you're going to waste time tomorrow. You're going to waste time the next day. Like you're, and it's not just about like being ultra productive. You know, it's like we rest in Christ. We, there's fullness of life in Him. He's not a harsh taskmaster. Um, but we want to be, be productive for His glory. But just, if you're not, confess it, repent, get back after it again. Don't languish in guilt and compound the sin. That's what we do. Satan, if we, if we can sin once, he wants us to sin twice and compound it. And it weaves this web of, of deception. So just the, the answer is always confess, repent, depend on his mercy, get back after it in day two. Or moment two. That's a little bit better. You don't have to wait till the next day. And then just, again, practically, just find somebody who works hard in the church, and, or at least appears to work hard, because you're going you're gonna to find when you get in their lunchbox. They feel just as weighed down as you do with their level of productivity and, and distraction and difficulty of their own flesh. But if they, I mean, you're going to see, they got some, maybe they have patterns you don't have. Find those folks. Figure out what makes them tick. Figure out what truths fuel, are fueling them and motivating them, and, and learn what kind of habits that they, they cultivated, how they did it, and then just try to take one little step in their direction. One little step. That's discipleship. So those are just some sets of principles for the employees, and I'll just give you some real quick for uh, employers or managers that, that Paul gives. Principles for employers or managers uh, from the instructions to the masters. He says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them, to the slaves, do, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. So there's the same, same uh, sort of flow. He tells them what to do. He kind of helps them flesh it out very briefly. And then he gives them a motivation at the end. Same pattern that we saw with the employee or the, uh, the slaves. But I just drew out a few principles real quick. For the manager, Paul says, and I, and I, I, I tried to get this better, but I couldn't figure a better way to say this. So. Manage in a reciprocal way. Let me explain it. Okay? It's very interesting how he says it here. Masters, do the same to them. Huh? What does that mean? Do the same to them. They're the masters. They're the, the, the other people are the slaves. What do you mean do the same? Like, I think the point is that there's, there needs to be a, a reciprocity in the, in the relationship, which is crazy when you think about what Paul's saying in this context. These are masters. So he's saying treat them with dignity as fellow image bearers, Christians. Treat them with respect. Reverence them. Um, you know, uh, serve them in ways as it's appropriate for the, the master-slave relationship. As a servant of Christ. I mean, he's basically saying, like, bend this thing out. Like, you're still the master. But relate to them in ways with, with dignity, respect, honor. I mean, this is, this, is very, this is very sort of counterintuitive. And then he kind of gives, he flushes that out a little bit in the next, the next principle. I'm not going to elaborate on this because I'm out of time. The next principle, he says, essentially, manage without manipulative threats. 
This was very common for masters to do in this first century, is to threaten with, with severe like, like punishments, um, death even at times, uh, sexual assault. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are in the records that, that these that masters did in this day, and it was just horrendous. So he's saying, stop that. Like, stop, and the, the issue is the manipulative threats, ways to try to manipulate their behavior through threats and treat them as, as fellow citizens with, of, of Christ. He's not saying don't warn them if you're in a manager position. There's definitely warnings that come and those kinds of things. He's talking about the respect, the dignity um, that's afforded to all people even in these relationships where you're in authority, essentially you're, you're, you're managing like Christ manages. And that's really the, the issue here in the, in the third principle because he says the motivation is to manage realizing that you're going to have to give an account of your management to your impartial master or manager. Okay? And that was a mouthful. But as you manage, as you're, as you're, in this case, as their master's, you're going to have to give an account to the master, to the manager of both of you. And the last phrase should be ringing in these master's ears. It says, and there is no partiality with him. So you think of all the benefits that the masters received in the society because they were the, they were the heads of the house and the courts were slanted in their way. And there are all things that it, there's no partiality with the master of heaven. So that's sort of the filter then <laughs> for the, the Christian boss, the Christian employer, to think through as he is leading, guiding, directing his business, managing his employees, is that lens right there. I'm going to have to give an account for all that I do in my business to Christ. Because the business belongs to him, all dominion belongs to him, all culture belongs to him, we will all have to give an account for everything we do under the sun which includes my business that I start, that I manage, that I built from the ground up, yada, yada, yada. God gave me that as a, as a gift to steward, and I'm going to have to give an account back to him for it. So, we're in there. Um, as we bring it to a close, do you see the incredible opportunity that you and I have in the workplace? Or in any work we do, it doesn't have to be in the workplace, but any work, if you're eventually a mom or whatever, any kind of work we do, we have this opportunity to show off Christ's glory. And the difficulties of the circumstances are training you for greater responsibility in the coming kingdom. And so many of you all already work hard. I mean, you're light years above where I was in your shoes. Um, and this is tremendously encouraging. Thrills my soul. You're diligent. You're joyful in your work. May you excel still more. And may these realities fuel you, even if you're young, even if you're lazy, uh, even if this seems daunting to you. Just may the Spirit take these principles and begin to work them slowly into your life, helping you focus in on one little area of your work, one little advance, um, because that's how He grows us. You're not going to eat the elephant in one bite. All right? So it's like start slow, start methodically, get after some of those main snares, and let's, let's seek to work to the glory of Christ. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these principles. We fall so far short, but Christ is our sufficient 
king. He's our model. Um, he's our energy. He energizes us in these things. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your presence among us, your faithfulness to us, your promise to bless, your promise that we would bear much fruit and then that fruit would abide. Thank you uh, for those unending promises. We've just scratched the surface tonight on on all that we could talk about with work and productivity and the, and the hope of the new creation. So I, I pray that, um, that these texts would get in us, uh, that we would talk about them and find ways to, to spur each other on to more good work. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's some snacks back there. Feel free to eat them all. And uh, thank you to everybody who prepared them. All right, we're dismissed. <laughs>